I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And this is our fifth episode. Fifth? <laughs> I know. I know. Who would have thought it? I know. And, you know, I'm excited because Christmas is coming. Yay. People may even be listening to this on Christmas or after. For their and Christmas gift <laughs> to themselves. <laughs> to themselves. And we, we, I think we talked enough about Santa last yes, week. Yes, we did. So we don't need to... Don't take anything I say offensive. Yeah, don't be offended by any offensive things <laughs> say. Don't take anything seriously. And when I said that if your kid is 10 or 11 or 12 and still believes in Santa, it means they're a moron. I wasn't talking about your kid. Wow. I was talking about other people's kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, I mean, not you, Becky, because yours is only five. She's, she's gifted but anyway. All not you out because there, of me. All you out there who have kids that age who believe in Santa, I wasn't talking about you. But you know what else? Shouldn't I always be listening anyway. You know, time, you so. know what else always makes Christmas a delight? Being it's, with family. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Oh, okay. No. Yeah, although that does. <laughs> but crimes that are committed on Christmas. Oh yeah. Or and, and during the Christmas holiday, or it just it gives this extra level. I noticed there's a lot of. Like quirky crimes. Yeah, people dress like Santa, Robin Cumberland Farms. And there, but there's also a lot of low-life crimes, like people stealing. Like well, a couple of years ago, a lady stole wreaths off people's gravestones and then she decorated her house. That's kind of sad. And then people sad. stealing like charity toys that they're going to give to it's kids. It's sad that they she decorated decorated their that's house. That's not sad. Don't give her sad. <laughs> She'll be sad when I punch right. her in the face. She didn't Ooh. have any reason to steal. Wow. Well, I didn't really felt so Well, she probably figured, you know what, they're dead. They don't need a reason. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. anyway, you and I have each picked out a Christmas crime that we kind of liked. Well, yeah, it, I kind of liked it. It well, happened at, I had a hard time finding crimes. That, right, but... Anyways. Anyway, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the recent most famous Christmas crime of all, which was the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey, which happened either on Christmas or the day after, depending on what theory you believe. But we're not going to talk about that today. Too much. Because next week we're going to, episode is we're going to ca- compare Jean Benet documentaries because yes. about four of them came out in September. Yeah, a whole and, bunch of them came out. And they were wildly. Is it the, tw- is it yes, the 20th? Yes, the 20th it is, anniversary. That's okay. Poor and little so thing. Yeah, I know. And as you know, she was a child, not a beauty queen, a child. She was a Who was girl. found dead in her basement after, alleg- after an alleged oh. abduction attempt. And we'll talk more about that next week. Nobody's ever been charged. Her mom, Patsy, died of ovarian cancer about 10 years after the crime. There's a lot of weird shit about it. And we will talk about all that weird shit next week. Yes. We just wanted to bring it up because we didn't want you people to think, ugh. They're talking about crimes that happen at Christmas, and they're not talking about Jean Benet. Yeah. So that's as much as we're going to talk about her tonight, because okay. we have other things to talk about, right? Yeah, I guess. And so, we're yeah. not at Think Tank co-working, <laughs> which graciously allows us to record. Well, because of the snowstorm, and because we're getting ready for our gala holiday family Christmas party yes. tomorrow, which is always a big event in the Millican yes. family. Yankee swap. And the Yankee swap and the stocking stuffers and the food. Yeah. And it, there's always a lot of preparation. So we're in our other recording <laughs> our other studio, her other location. Hopefully we'll get through this without any interruptions or... Or anyone being, what are they doing in there? Banging on the door. Yeah. Are you um, all right? Right. So <laughs> do you want, Becky, do you want to start with your yes, selection for tonight? with my... I'm looking forward to it because crime. I know nothing about what you're going to talk about. Okay, well, the crime I picked takes place in the early hours of Christmas Eve 1990 in Huntington Beach, California. It was about 12.30 in the morning, and a 19-year-old girl had just returned from looking at Christmas lights with friends. 
Now, you probably saw this. I saw it on 48 Hours Mystery. Now, I'm going to go mostly by her account. Okay. Because I did see that 48 Hours earlier this year, and I think that she's probably the best source. I swear every article I read had different details wrong. The I found different. that 48 Hours very confusing. Uh, let me okay. explain. All right. I, I will let you explain. I watched I'm it sorry. twice. I watched it again the other day to refresh because I thought she did a good job of telling her story, especially because it was a horrible, horrible crime. Yeah, and her little dog. So I'm going to go by her. Like I said, I'll call her Victoria like she called herself. She didn't want to be named for obvious reasons because being a rape victim right you you never want to no because people drag you through the mud right you're you're more vilified than the rapist in a lot of ways but anyway anyway so some sources say she was walking her dog which according to her story didn't sound like it It sounded like she had just been dropped off from looking at christmas lights with friends and she had a little dog she did have a little dog that a little pomeranian or yeah it was small enough for her to tuck away white dog she tucked in inside her jacket because it was cold out she said it was cold but it's huntington beach well you know people in california get cold i see the hipsters wearing gloves and knit hats and stuff and i look at people magazine they like show people in la and they always like and it's like 60 on. degrees I'm out. like, what the hell? We're wearing Bermuda shorts up I here in sandals when it's 60 in Maine. So she says she heard a car driving slowly, and she saw a figure approaching her, a man asking her directions. And then another man came up from behind, and she was like kind of sandwiched between them. They, they both like jumped on her at the same time and squished her between them. The man that was facing her was grabbing at her and her dog bit him. Good for the because dog. Because the poor dog got squished. He said, what the fuck was that, apparently, and jumped back a little bit. So she took her dog and threw her dog in the bushes because she was afraid the dog would get killed by these assholes. And she ran, tried to run. And they grabbed her by the hair, dragged her back. He gouged at her eyes with his fingers, the guy, the Asian guy, she said. She said it was an Asian guy and a Hispanic guy. She saw them, apparently enough to identify them. He stuck a gun to her head, and they dragged her to a car, and she was thrown in the back of the car. She was repeatedly raped and terrorized. The Asian man told her he was looking for a beach girl for Christmas. Weren't they driving around with her for some time? Yeah, they did drive around, but then they did stop, and they repeatedly raped her for hours. He told her that he was going to kill her and throw her off the cliffs and, you know, all sorts of horrible things. She was trying to get them to not kill her, even though he kept saying he was going to kill her. So she told him that she had a child, and she wanted to get back to see her child. And he said, well, I'm not going to let you live. You've seen us. And she said, I can't see anything. You gouged my eyes out. Did she really have a child? No. She oh, just she just told them that. Yeah. She had a picture in her wallet her friend gave her of her, her child that she had just had, so she told it, them it was her kid, I guess. So she was brutally beaten for hours, pistol whipped, rape, raped with a gun, and wow. she was scared because she knew the gun was loaded, she oh, said. Oh, God. So uh, hours later, they dumped her out of the car. They blindfolded her with her own pants, but she was otherwise naked. She doesn't know why she was allowed to live, but she's she was glad. I always like that phrase, allowed to live. I know. You know. The Asian guy said, Merry fucking Christmas, bitch. Oh, nice. Nice. A little Christmas sentiment there. She Maybe she it was ran. the Christmas spirit that they yes. said. Let her that's so that's that a nice, nice Christmas Very story. Very nice. Yeah. Oh, no. What a nice guy. Yeah. So she ran to a house, a nearby house. They were driving around the streets. But, you know, it was late at night. I don't know what Huntington Beach is like, but it's, you know, a quiet place. Oh, one thing that I remember from, I didn't put this in my notes, but I remember from the 48 hours that when they first grabbed her, the Hispanic guy pointed a gun at her neighbor's windows and said, the first neighbor that hears you yell 
is dead. I'm going to shoot your neighbors. I remember that. She was that very too. good at telling her story. Yeah, she did. She did a great job of telling her story. She ran to a house and they called the police. They brought her to the. They brought her to the police station. Took her statement. They took a rape test. All that stuff. They got DNA and stuff. The police brought her back to the scene, and she looked for her dog. And she did find her dog, although one article said that the dog was never recovered. She found it. According she did to, say it was she hiding, found it. cowering in the bushes. Yes, and she said that the cops that she was with started crying when she found it. As corny as it is, when I saw that on 48 Hours Mystery, because I, I had been worried about the dog. I was worried about the doggy, too. Yeah. The case stagnated for almost 20 years. They had DNA, but they hadn't been able to, even though they took the DNA, they took a lot of DNA in the early 90s and stuff, and they didn't do much with it unless they had to because it was really hard to get it tested and stuff. And it's not like it, it is was. now, like Maury Povich can just test it. It was, I know. <laughs> and Maury Povich has a lab in his cellar. Yeah, I think he That's does. That's the second week in a row we've I like we've Maury, though. Even after, though I, I do, too. His show is sleazy. I still like him. I just want to say, as far as DNA testing goes, back then it was a very broad thing, and you needed a yes, lot of matter yes. and now it's like they it's can much you can now. touch something and they yes. can they they had no leads they they just had nowhere to go with it but in 2008 they had a hit a dna hit a dna hit because this guy joseph's son had been arrested for vandalism and as part of a plea agreement he gave a dna sample and one of the other mm-hmm. articles mm-hmm. i read in the la times or something said he had to submit his dna because of proposition 69 so they must have had a, a citizens law that certain crimes you had to submit DNA maybe. A lot of states over the years have passed laws like that. In fact, Maine has one that for certain... And I think there's some controversy about civil liberties. Right, there is because you do have some well, privacy. Can kind of we can ask Matt Nichols about oh, that. Some not today Matt. because we had something else we were going to yes. ask him about. <laughs> but but Maine has a law. I think it's in Maine. It's certain types of crime, yeah. and it might be in in California. I can't remember if it's a, a certain level of violence or a certain type, like a crime against a person or something. But you have to submit DNA. But it's a fairly new law, and I think it is. I'm sorry. We I'm, will ask Matt. We though. will. Yeah. So Joseph's son was a mixed martial arts fighter, which mm. uh, ultimate fighting is what I call it. Yeah, I call it's it stupid. Yeah, it's just kicking and hitting. And it is. It's, it's like, uh, I always think of it as like Bar a playground fight. fight, you know, and Roadhouse. the guys are kicking <laughs> each other and slapping at each other. And he had also appeared in some movies, most notably a 1997 Austin Powers movie where he played a guy called Random Task. Now, I have to admit, I have seen that movie. No. I have never seen a full Austin Powers movie because I find it very annoying. I do too. I would never sit through an Austin Powers movie. I don't Powers know why. I'm sorry to anyone who's a fan and likes to quote them. I just find that Michael Mike Myers can be annoying. He can Sorry, be. Mike Myers. I know you're I can, a big fan. I can take he it. He can take it, though. He does. He's Canadian, so he's he, very he nice. Care. Yeah. I liked him in little doses, like on Saturday Night Live, like when he played that Jewish mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Bella. Like Bella. I can't even say it. That's his mother-in-law. I, I think know. he got divorced, though. Yeah. I don't know. So the cops arrested him, and they gave Victoria a photo lineup, and she picked him immediately. She would not forget his face. On the 48 Hours, she said that she actually had that movie in her house. Wow. Now, I don't know if she had watched it because it seems like she would have seen that guy and been like, oh my. So she told them, I didn't see your faces because you gouged my eyes out. She lied. She, yeah, she lied. She lied She was them. very smart given she, the situation. Uh, she did. She said she had seen them, but she was trying to keep herself alive. So she she was I, thinking of anything she could say. I give her a lot of credit yes, for she was, thinking she was instead of... a smart girl. Panicking. She did not panic. I think sometimes when people are in that kind of situation, they just go into survival mode too. 
Yeah. Not to be too cliche about it. But yes, yeah, so the photo lineup, I had to do a photo lineup once. A cop, the cops brought it to my house. When did I lived they? on... Um, was it a cop? Did he put down a boombox and start stripping? No, he was a real cop. Uh, oh, I'm glad he didn't. Those are fake cops. <laughs> Those are fake oh, cops. wow. I don't okay. That, I guess that's no, why we can No, know. we'll have to ask some of the I'm not going to say why, but I thought, <laughs> no. no, I'm kidding, obviously. When I lived up on Mundry Hill, so about 30 years ago, my neighbor got broken into, and her apartment did. It was a him. It was a His guy. apartment. Did. Yes. Not he, he personally got broken into. No. Someone knocked on our door one night. We were sitting around. And we lived on the second floor. And these guys lived on the first floor. And this guy knocked on the door. And I remember the guy's name. But I'm not going to say because he might sue us. But he knocked on the door and asked if Bill was there. And I said, he lives downstairs. I don't know if he's home or not. So I didn't think much of it. And then apparently... When Bill got home, someone had stolen his guitars or something, and mm. probably as all his pot and stuff, I don't know. Mm. And so he reported it to the cops, and the cops came over, and they showed me a photo lineup. And, and did they say, was it this one? And they yes. pointed to a certain and they said, you know, do any of these like With their this. finger, like the Ouija board, their finger <laughs> covering <laughs> over. No, they actually didn't. They said, can you look at these pictures and tell me if any of them look familiar? And, of course, one of them, I said it was him. And he said, this guy just got out of jail. I'm glad that you picked him. I like your. Like I like it when you do impressions. I know they all sound the same. Right. They do. So apparently he went back to jail and probably has harbored a vendetta against me. He is, and now he's going to come kill you because obviously he listens <laughs> to our podcast and is going to anyway, hunt so, you down at our secret. But I felt like you know, secret I know, studio. I've been there. Yeah. yeah. See, I thought you were going to talk about the time, and I don't know if it was the same apartment or not. When you're downstairs, or your neighbor was being beaten up oh, by no, her boyfriend, no. and she but was yelling. We knew who that was. Oh, Rebecca. That was Rebecca. No, she's yelling, Becky. Oh, Becky. Becky, wow. help me. And then she told Didn't I talk about this the last time? Maybe. Or maybe you just talked about it to me. Or maybe oh. you talked about it with maybe Matt. Maybe I told Matt. Yeah. Matt and I have a lot of conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so she, she identified. Photo lineup. Yes. So they had the DNA. They had his uh, her identifying him. They were pretty sure it was him. And he was arrested. They still hadn't found his accomplice. So they decided they were going to put his face out, uh, you know, circulate it on the news, I guess. And also, I forgot, you know, this is 2008. So probably Newspapers. Internet. Newspapers, but also internet. Yes, I know. <laughs> Sorry. Newspapers. Because they had the police sketches from 1990. So they put his photograph with the police sketch of the Hispanic man and a guy who went to high school with Joseph's son called the cops and said, you know, he had a friend in high school that he hung around with all the time and told him the name of this guy. and His name was Santiago Gatan. Mm. And he had moved somewhere else in the state, but he was living a quiet life, apparently, a family man or something. Mm. But it was him. They checked his DNA. Oh, what they did was they said it on the 48 hours. That 48 hours actually had more information than most of this other stuff. They did a stakeout. They saw him drinking a soda. He came out oh, right. and, and put it on top the... of the dumpster, and that's how they got his DNA, and it matched. And he pled guilty to five felony counts. Related to that one crime? Yes. But you know what? The statute of limitations for rape and kidnapping, by the time that they had these guys in mm. jail, and I don't know what the statute was. Maybe it was, I don't know. It was less than how many years had gone Which by. Which shouldn't be a statute no, for something a crime like that. It shouldn't. But anyways, it did. So, but the DA was a clever boy. He said it was one of his first cases. He realized that torture had no statute of limitations, and neither did conspiracy to commit murder. I think it's funny that torture doesn't have a statute of limitations, yet rape does. It has to do with, from what he said, it had to do with 
what the penalty is for it. And it can get a penalty of life in prison. So because of that, it doesn't have a statute of limitations. So I guess rape, never get, you never get life in prison for that. Yeah. I guess because not. it's not that bad. Right. I mean, women don't yeah. really get to end. He, he did a plea agreement, 17 years and four months. Joseph's son said he did not do it. Joseph's son <laughs> said he was innocent of the crime. He never would do anything like that. No. I saw his jailhouse interview and he said, that's nasty. I wouldn't do that. That's yes, nasty. you would, ultimate fighter dickhead. So he went to trial. Just the fact that he used the word nasty, you know, in that kind of way people yes. use it these days trivializes it and makes me think he, yeah he would do something like that well but. obviously he did it so he went to trial in september of 2011 he got convicted of torture of one felony kind of torture which was life with with possibility of parole so i think he could have been paroled in like 15 years with that sentence wow. He could have gone up for parole. Um, he did not get the conspiracy to commit murder. He was not convicted of that because his lawyer successfully argued that because they made an effort to hide their identity from her, it meant that it they, meant they weren't, weren't going to kill, kill her. Even though he kept telling her he was going to kill her jerks. and throw her off the cliff. Did it say in any of your research what the legal definition of torture is and no, how that not. would... And that how that definition would apply to what they had done to her. I mean, obviously, a lay person would say, "Yeah, they tortured I don't her." Know. No, it because didn't. you'd think that would be used for a lot of I crimes. I know. I know. Well, as far as I'm concerned, any any rape is torture. I know, and that's why I'm asking for a legal. But def- no, they didn't say because yeah, it just seems very good question. right. Because if it was such a novel approach to convicting these guys who did this long time rape, yeah, rape a long time ago. You would think that if it was this obvious thing, other people would have done it. Yes. I'm just bringing that up. No, no, that's a good point. No, and I did not see, I didn't see it. And I should have, maybe, if I had been better at my research, I wouldn't have I wouldn't blame you. I'd say if the research sources had done their jobs better, you wouldn't know that. So, life with possibility of parole did not appease her fear, Victoria's Victoria's fear. Because he could possibly get out again. And go after and her. And go after her. I mean, seriously. Yes. She testified against him. If it weren't for her. He, but anyways, she didn't have to worry because a month after being in, in prison, his cellmate was found dead in the cell. Oops. He killed his cellmate. He beat him and kicked him to death. Amazing he'd do anything that nasty. I know. His cellmate was a, apparently a child rapist who, well, they called him a child molester, but I call him a child rapist, who was, I believe, only in, in prison for a couple months uh, because of a parole violation. Mm. Son said he was acting in self-defense and suffers from social and mental issues. I bet he no does. No shit. Yeah. And he reportedly told a responding officer, I told you I needed to get out of here. <laughs> they let him out then. Fuck him. I know. So this newest crime could have triggered the death penalty because of his previous conviction. Okay. Something about the torture. So California has death penalty. Yes, they do. Okay. So, yes, California does have the death penalty. So he could have triggered it, but Victoria would have had to testify again, and she said she didn't want to. And it wasn't because of him. It was more because of her. She said that I am done with it. I'm just done. Well, good for her. And she, I think the fact that he would have been, he was in, he's in prison for the rest of his life right. now. For killing point. his cellmate. And also, he's currently 
in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. Is it Vacaville? Yeah, it doesn't matter. So he's in some mental health facility, I think, which I guess is good because he's obviously a psycho. Yeah, he is, but so is everybody, a lot of people in prison. One thing that struck me about when I watched it on 48 Hours Mystery and now with you talking about it, you know, the huge gap in time between when Mm -hmm. they committed this crime and when they were caught, just the description of the crime, and when you watch that 48 Hours Mystery episode, it really strikes you. I could not believe this was the only time they would have done something I know, that's what I thought, too. I'm sure at least he, uh, Joseph's son, I'm sure... I'm sure he's done it before. They seemed to know what they were doing. But just the way they got her into the car, the way they treated her, even the things they said and did, it just seemed like they were... Yes, it was something they had done before. I mean, because they knew exactly what to do. I feel like on that 48 Hours Mystery episode, was there another woman that something had happened to... No. I'm trying to remember. Okay. I was thinking of something else. Okay. It's all about Victoria. One thing, too, that strikes me is I remember, and she didn't do this, what I'm about to talk about. I watched years ago an Oprah show where the actress Gabrielle Union was on. She had Hmm. been, when she was working in a retail store as a young, younger woman, had been abducted and raped. Ah! They talked a lot on that show about how no matter what's going on, Never let them bring you to another location. Yes. Never let them to, bring you to no, another location. Never even, let, get in the car. Never if they get point the a gun at you and right. say they're going to shoot you, let them shoot you because they're going to kill you anyway if they, if they get you and away Victoria, from where you are. Victoria had no choice the way they sandwiched her and got her into the car, which always made me feel like they had done it before. It seemed very quick and, re- and, and yes. not only rehearsed, but that they knew what they were doing. Yes. But if somebody holds a knife to your neck or whatever, you you scream bloody murder, you fight them off yes. as best you can, and lot and not lots of times, but that sometimes scares the person away. They don't want to deal with it. But you never ever ever go to a well, second location. I remember location. seeing a guy on probably it was Oprah too that was saying also instead of yelling help or rape, he said to yell fire because then people it was sad but true. But people, people pay, more pay, attention. pay more attention. Yeah. One thing I've always thought, and I think I got this from the Tom Wolf book. What was the one I liked? Oh, um, the Man in Full. A uh, Man in Full. Just act friggin' crazy. Oh, Remember yeah. the guy went to prison and just decided he was going to act crazy and everybody would leave. Well, there was spoiler another book I read, too. I don't know who... I can't remember who wrote Although it. Although, easier said that... E- it's easy for when we're sitting here in our studio. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, there was a book I read. I think it was Jacqueline Mitchard, but I can't remember the book except for the woman went to prison because a child... It was either a child in her care or it was on her property drowned in her pond. And she was... Ooh, that rings a bell. Yeah, she was she was convicted of manslaughter or something. But she went to prison, and that's what she did. She acted really nuts. That and wouldn't all be, the women avoided her because she was nuts. That or, wouldn't be a big stretch for me. Or you could be like, what's her name on uh, Rodriguez? What's the name of the woman on... On uh, Orange is the New Black. The woman that wouldn't shower. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I do that anyway. I do that. But I've been practicing <laughs> acting nuts for decades. <laughs> I don't have to act. That's how my, you know, what made me so popular in my <laughs> places. Ha <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> ha. Uh, well, anyway, so that was my Christmas. Wow. What a so, Christmas for her. Well, uh, actually, she said that after that, her in the either the sentencing hearing or or in her testimony was that her Christmases had been ruined for her because obviously it happened on Christmas Eve. And she has PTSD. And they pretty much wrecked her life. It sucks. It wasn't one of her sisters. 
wasn't wasn't one of her sisters on the 48 hours mystery yeah, or something talking about how she, her younger sister helped her after because the mother couldn't deal with it which right I thought was lame but whatever. thanks mom but talking about Help what she had been like yes. before yes. and what yes. she had been like yes. after it happened. Which we know and don't I've known people that have changed. So Well, that that's, that's quite a Christmas picker-upper. Well, I'm glad that Victoria is doing well. But watch that 48 hours. And, and despite the fact that it has affected her all these decades later, I think one big takeaway was how cool she was while it was happening and how the things she did probably saved her life and also were instrumental in finally getting those guys convicted even though it was so much longer that she despite this these horrific things happening to her and the fact that she probably thought she was going to be killed or she did think she was going to be killed she kept her head and did smart things to keep herself alive yes she did and we'll never know why they didn't kill her except for the christmas spirit you know yeah i have to believe that some of that had to do with her behavior i, I agree well, mine is a little different. Good. And my topic, my Christmas topic, like the Jean Benet Ramsey crime, it actually happened the day after Christmas. Uh, okay. Or maybe not, like, because we don't know. Jean Benet's may have happened earlier. We'll discuss it. But yeah, that's for next week. Mine is Michael McDermott, who worked at Edgewater Technologies in Wakefield, Mass., as a computer IT guy. Uh oh. Shortly after 11 a.m. on December 26, 2000, he took an AK-47 out of a bag and walked down the hall. Got out of his cubicle and walked down the hall. And a coworker said, "Where are you going with that gun?" Ah! I I, I don't think they said it like that. <laughs> hey, where are you going with that where gun? Are you going with that and his gun? answer was human resources. Whoa! And the coworker said. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, go get him. No, we shouldn't. <laughs> I didn't mean that about I meant thank God too it wasn't soon. At me. Too, no, no, too soon. no. That's not the way I meant Anyway, McDermott, a three hundred fifty pound man who went ah. six foot two, three hundred fifty pound man who went by the nickname Mucko, walked <laughs> down the hall armed with the AK forty seven. He also had a semi automatic pistol, a twelve oh gauge shotgun, and a bag full of ammo. <sighs> and he calmly, according to reports, shot seven co workers to death. What year was this again? 2000? 2000. Okay. December 26, 2000. He lived in Haverhill, Massachusetts, where I had worked in the mm-hmm. 80s. So I felt kind of a connection to it because it's all about it's me. All about it's you. all about me. All seven co-workers were shot multiple times. Ah. And, and they were all shot in the back of the head repeatedly, although they were also shot in limbs, torsos. Mm. He shot a total of 49 rounds from the AK-47, six from the shotgun, in a matter of minutes. Some people hid under conference tables or in offices. Police arrived minutes later to find Mucko sitting in the lobby, calmly holding, I think it was the AK-47 between his legs, pointed at the ceiling, waiting for them. They tackled him to the ground, and he said, I don't speak German. Huh? Right? Yeah, okay. Well, that was actually the first little step in his defense. Because he later claimed in court that he was born without a soul and that God had allowed him and nobody he never what? talked to any Yeah. Okay. Well he had never know. he had never talked to anybody, anybody else about this. He he was born without a soul and that God had allowed him to earn one back by traveling back in time to kill Nazis. And he had killed seven of them that day, Hitler being one of them and the other were the six Oh well that was good. Right. So it so and that's a Christmas story. No, I'm (laughs) but there's more to the story. Uh A more likely reason that he shot his seven co workers all in the human resources and accounting departments 
was that he owed the IRS $5,500 in back taxes, and his employer was about to start garnishing his wages. 5500 In back taxes, and his employer was about to start garnishing okay. his wages. He had asked for a cash advance at work the week before and had been refused. Oh, well, you know. At 11.07, which was three minutes before he walked down the hallway with the gun, a customer service person from Chrysler had called him up to tell him his truck was being repossessed, mm. and he, he supposedly said... I won't be needing it. Come and get it. He has an issue with problem solving because <laughs> killing all those people isn't going to pay his back taxes. No, it's not. But they're still going to get that money from Right. Him. Well, they're not because he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But I'm getting to that. He also said that he believed he had, was arrested by the German police and that he died shortly after in a German police station. Crazy talk. He said he's in purgatory. Oh, okay. This was at his arraignment. A well, place where I can see that. There's more. Okay. A place where Roman Catholics believe one goes temporarily. I'm quoting this from an article about it. Those of us who are Catholic know what purgatory is, and if you're not, you kind of know what it is anyway. But you need to get out of When you're in purgatory, you need to get out of it. But it's not really hell. And he believed that his lawyer, Kevin Reddington, was his guardian angel. Oh, that was nice. That's sweet, isn't it? But on the stand, at his trial a year or two later, McDermott was confronted with evidence from his own computer that he had researched how to fake mental illness. So, knock me over with a feather. And he had also, according to Prosecutor Thomas O'Reilly, evidence also showed that he had purchased a book on how to feign illness. They also found, when searching his home and his computer equipment, a will, gun cases, ammunition, several Dungeons and Dragons books. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's a passport. Hmm. Blasting caps, bomb-making literature, three gallons of liquid nitric acid. In his work locker, they found a semi-automatic rifle with a sniper scope, computer equipment, and more live ammunition. In his how, car... Okay, wait, I need to... How can you bring that stuff into work without people noticing? Aren't they pretty... He had it in a bag. This was 2000. Oh, it was they before, break up to... They, you can break the guns up Well, you can put... You can pieces. have a gym bag. An AK-47 is only okay. about this long. All right. 12-gauge shotgun. I don't know. We'd need one of our gun experts on to... No, but whatever. he did. In his car, they found an envelope containing a letter from the IRS with the levy information. Huh. Yeah, so... The prosecutor, O'Reilly, said at the trial this was a methodical undertaking. Actually, I think he may have said that at the arraignment. He specifically targeted the individuals we believe he shot. Martha Coakley, who was the state AG at the time in Massachusetts, also pointed out the day or a couple days after that he specifically targeted people in HR and accounting. So if he was mentally ill and they were Nazis or something, they all just happened to work in the department. Well, they can be kind of Nazis. He'd, he'd also gripe to his co-workers about the garnishment. On Christmas Eve, the Haverhill police had received a call reporting gunshots shortly before midnight. And they learned that a man driving a sedan with a license plate, Mucko, <laughs> I know, I can't help but laugh at that, had been spotted in a wooded area where they later found a handful of shotgun shells. Hmm. The cop, one of the cops at the time, said, We didn't encounter McDermott. If luck had been on our side, history could possibly have been changed. Well, you know, if pigs flow out of your butt, you'd, be, <laughs> you'd have a lot of If pork. we had caught him, we would have caught him. You know, yeah, or, no shit. or we can do a Christmas one. If it if some butts were butter and nuts, <laughs> we'd all have a very merry Christmas. Cherries and nuts. So he was sentenced to seven life sentences without parole. Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty. And he, his lawyer still maintains he's crazy and should have gone to a mental institution and the insanity defense 
He looks just like Hagrid from Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, as you know, I've never watched, listened to, read, or anything else with any of the Harry. So I can't... Don't know what you're missing. So I have no idea what you're talking about. There were several things that came out of his rampage. One of them is that the Boston Globe and the 10-year anniversary of the rampage did a good story about it. People obviously are still haunted by it. And yeah. I would say now, even 16 years after, they're, they're still haunted. According to the Boston Globe story, the case also occupies a special place in the evolution of police investigations in Massachusetts. It was one of the first high-profile murder cases in which investigators persuaded the courts to let them search the computers of a suspect for evidence. Ah. A common practice today. Yeah. It says in the Globe story, as a result of the seizure of McDermott's home computers, investigators determined that he had surfed the internet in the years before the murders for articles about faking insanity, which we already mentioned. He had also bought a book called Clinical Assessment of Malingering and Deception, yeah. a reference book used by psychiatrists. Hmm. The massacre, according to the Boston Globe, also fueled public alarm over random workplace violence. Since the 1980s, when a series of shootings at U.S. post offices, yes. hence the term going, going postal. postal, galvanized such concerns, Americans have been rattled by rampages committed by disgruntled workers, said James Allen Fox, a criminology professor at Northeastern University. The incidents, Fox said, led to the security deaths that are ubiquitous in workplaces and spawned a cottage in industry of experts who advise companies on how to prevent violence, yeah. which Fox considers of dubious value. The violence has also resulted in widespread news reports based on figures from the Bureau of Labor Statistics suggesting that almost a thousand American workers are murdered each year by vengeful co-workers. Mm. In fact, Fox said, and this again is from the Boston Globe 10-year anniversary story, the vast majority of workplace homicides involve robberies such as taxicab holdups and convenience store stickups, assaults on police officers, and domestic disputes that spill over into the office. Fewer than 100 people are killed each year by disgruntled workers and former employees, and most of those episodes, unsettling as they are, involve only one victim. Yeah, usually the poor ex-wife or strange And wife. as the Globe points out, that's of little comfort to people whose lives were shattered mm. by McDermott. Besides the um, people he killed, there were a lot of people who hid, were traumatized, were oh, cut yeah. by flying glass. And the people killed were Cheryl Troy, 50 of Beverly, Mass., Janice Haggerty, 46, of Stone and Mass. Louis Javel, 58, of Nashua, New Hampshire. Jennifer Capobianco, 29, of Brighton, Mass. Paul Marceau, 36, of Melrose. And Rose Manfredi, 48, of Lexington, Mass. Aww. And some of them had kids. They were all yeah. somebody's family member. And this happened the day after Christmas. Oh, God. And according to the story in the Globe, the Wakefield police officers who responded at the time, and Wakefield's a nice town, a suburb of Boston, not a big crime hotbed. They were traumatized by it too, and 10 years later were still traumatized. So that shooting had a lot of repercussions. And, and then also that type of shooting has spawned the workplace pastime of guessing which of your co-workers might yeah. shoot you. Right. Yeah. I shouldn't laugh. I mean, it, we laugh about it, but we do do that. Well, yeah, and working at newspapers, we used to guess that, and we also used to be surprised that people we had covered weren't shooting us. And there's one that yeah. <laughs> were coming in and shooting us. Well, I won't go into security measures at newspapers, and there there's much more security at there's most newspapers. There's store. Well, well, you're right, but you work at a retail store. But people can go in and shoot them. Right, they could. But they don't. I don't know why. Well, don't give people ideas. 
But we used to talk about, when I worked in New Hampshire, the case of Carl Draga, and oh, maybe yeah. we can talk about that someday, in 1996 in northern New Hampshire, and he did shoot a newspaper. That was sad. He shot a woman who was a lawyer and who was on mm-hmm. the code enforcement, and then the newspaper was next door, and he, the newspaper editor came running out. And she ran in and said, it's Draga, and he's got a gun. And then she was shot out in the street. Dennis Chuse, the editor of the newspaper, who was unarmed, tackled him, and he shot him. He also shot a couple cops. And maybe we can talk about that someday. Yes, we we could even we could maybe even have Lorna Calhoun, who covered it at the time for the New Hampshire Union Leader, that would be nice. to join us because she like she tells guess. quite a chilling tale. We do. So that was you know 16 years ago. I remember that story too. Right. And I'm not saying mass shootings happen more often, but I think now the 24-hour news cycle has become much more frenetic. Well, it's the type of thing, too. I think the more it happens, the more people who are mentally unbalanced see it as a solution to their problems. You know, they see it. Which it never is. I know. (laughs) But you know what I mean. You see it. You see someone did that. They want to join the hit parade. And the other thing is I wanted to mention about the story is it's kind of interesting that he was trying to fake mental illness when obviously he's fucked up because if he owes $5,500 and he's upset about that... It's ironic. Well, it's, it's ironic. I mean, I he think is with, mentally ill. Well, I think with a lot of things, <laughs> he does, you know, a mental illness has different But he wants to be legally mentally. Yes, I know, the legal definition. I think with a lot of things, it wasn't he was, oh, this normal guy who who is all stable and stuff, and then he owes the IRS $5,500 and he just snapped. I think that's an easy, and news reports do that a lot. People want to know why, and it's easy to find this one thing. Oh, he saw a text on his girlfriend's phone. This is not this case, but, Mm -hmm. you know, just an example. And that's why he killed her. He saw a text. And it's not, oh, this person's all nice and normal. Then this one thing happens, and he goes on, he kills someone or goes on a rampage, but it's very easy in trying to explain it to make it seem yes. that way when a more nuanced... Well, just like when someone commits suicide, people are, well, this happened, he broke up. Right. With, uh, you know, it, my guess there's is... There's so many reasons why. The reason you commit suicide is because you're suicidal. No matter what happens in your life, that might be... Right. That's not the cause of why you're doing it. And you're he freaking was, out because you're a freak. It's the way you're reacting to something that a normal person right. wouldn't react that way. So. And the thing just sparked you know the irs thing was probably the last straw and he was probably an angry screwed up guy anyway and there were probably a lot of things and part one of the issues with things like that is people just think this guy over here he's this way he's jerky he's whatever and then he goes and does this thing because one thing set it off and nobody looks back and says well he was already going in that direction and this thing set him off it's like oh he did it because of the 5500 I'm sure it wasn't the amount of money, yes. but the fact that he resented yeah. his place of employment for garnishing his wages, yes. and he took it personally. They w- wouldn't give him a cash advance. And if I remember right, when it happened, there were a lot more detailed news stories about it, and there were other things, people talking about his behavior at work and his behavior toward his coworkers, things he said about his ex-wife. You know, he was just an angry guy who felt the world was out to get him. Hmm. Everybody was against him. I think we all know people like that. Yes. And, but you never think this guy's going to come in and shoot up our workplace. Sometimes and, you wonder, though. Right, but fortunately it doesn't really happen that often. But this was Massachusetts' biggest mass killing. Wow. So I guess there's a lot to be said for that, seven people. 
So that's my cheerful Christmas. Thank you. Yeah. You guys can send in your own, if you send us your own Christmas crime memories, we may read some of them on the air. Maybe. For in the new year. But maybe we won't. (laughs) (laughs) So it's time for Ask a Lawyer. And we have Matt Nichols from Nichols and Churchill in Portland with us. And I remembered to say he's here this time. I'm like, one of the other times, remember, I forgot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Hello. I am here. Thanks for being here, Matt. Thank you for having me. And we have a question that's on everyone's mind all the time, (coughs) at least mine. There are some high-profile cases, and the most recent one is Dylan Roof, who's charged with filling nine people in a church in South Carolina, and Todd Colehep, who we talked about a few episodes before, charged with serial killings, also in South Carolina. Just a coincidence where the defendant wants to act as his own lawyer. What's involved with doing that? Is it ever a really good idea, and is it ever successful? Because it always just seems kind of nutty. Matt? Well, you start with the Sixth Amendment, and the Sixth Amendment guarantees people a um, a zealous and effective defense through counsel or otherwise. If a person says, for example, Your Honor, I want to act as my own attorney, at that point the court has to make an inquiry, well, not only an inquiry, but also to advise the defendant of certain rights that he or she has. For example, the court has to advise a person that he, I'm going to say he because of my Latin training, and it includes <laughs> she. Well, well, you can also say he, and maybe you can address this at some point in your answer, but I can't think of a high-profile case in which a woman represented herself. The, the, uh, the court needs to advise the defendant that he has the right to counsel, make sure and make sure that uh, the defendant understands that. The court also has to advise the defendant of the maximum and, if applicable, any minimum mandatory sentences that apply in that particular case. Those are things that come down from the, uh, the main Supreme Court in Iowa versus Tovar. That's if the person is going to enter a guilty plea. Now, if the person says, I want to have a trial in my case, the court has to advise a person of many more things. That is, you have the right to an attorney in both cases. If you're eligible, the state will provide an attorney for you at no cost or at a reduced cost. You always have the right to hire one on your own if you can afford to do that. And again, the court has to advise a person of minimum mandatory penalties, especially jail, and the maximum jail sentence that would be applicable. But in the case where the person wants to act as his own attorney in a trial, which is, I think is what you're talking about. Right. I mean, does it ever happen when they plead guilty? It seems as though... Our main Supreme Court has set out one set of standards for a person who's about to enter a guilty plea and a more stringent set of standards for a person who's going to act as his own trial counsel. And that is to thoroughly advise a person further that a lawyer is special training, special skill, can help you with jury selection. That's not an easy process to do. Tell you about the rules of evidence, file appropriate motions, etc., etc. And generally you're imparting to the person that a trial is really, really difficult. It's not what you see on TV. The court also yeah. well the court also has an obligation to make sure that the person is competent. The court shall not allow a person who is unable to understand what's going on under just like a person would be found incompetent who has an attorney 
if the person cannot effectively assist his attorney in his defense. So the court, the court has, uh, has a burden, has a job to do to make sure that the person is at least meeting minimal, at least has a, a, a minimal ability to, to, to defend himself. Is it correct that, that a lawyer still sits, still sits with them? and kind of guides them through the process during the trial? That's called that is called a standby attorney. The court, again, in fashioning uh, a just remedy, will sometimes, depending on the series, also a factor is not only the person's intelligence and ability to understand what's going on, but also the seriousness of the crime. And in, in most of those high-profile, very serious cases, you do see the court appoint a standby attorney that's for two reasons. One is to to provide some assistance to that person, and also, which the U.S. Supreme Court has said, is to avoid the appearance that the person is defending him or herself during the trial. Now, one thing, these folks who choose to represent themselves are held to the same standards of decorum and the rules of court that an attorney would be. They're not allowed to come in and say, well, I'm not really a lawyer, so I get to act like, and I get to play by my own rules. Right. No, no, mm -hmm. they have to conform to the court's rules. Also, if they do that, act as their own attorney, they give up their right in a post-conviction review, or in federal court, they call it a habeas writ, they give up their right to claim, I was denied my Sixth Amendment right because I didn't have effective assistance so counsel. So they can't say incompetent counsel or whatever so, as an right. appeal. So that oh. takes, right. out, that a takes away a huge appeal yeah. avenue. Or avenue. Yeah. As long as the judge does it right. right. And you'll see judges are exceedingly scrupulous, even in minor criminal offenses, when they uh, have a colloquy with a defendant about representing him or herself. Could they argue in appeal that the, the judge made a mistake letting them represent themselves? Yeah, sure. Just like any other any other mistake, yeah. sure. Your appeal probably wouldn't go very far. They don't anyway, usually, it seems like. Do you generally find that people who act as their own lawyer do not have a successful outcome? We just had one. In a couple, uh, yeah, a pro se defendant, pro se meaning representing himself in an OUI case. It was a, a competing harm defense. Competing harms, without going into detail, is an exceedingly difficult defense to present. It's an incredibly difficult defense to even get a jury instruction from a judge. And this fellow uh, represented himself and was acquitted on those grounds. Got the jury on his side. Yeah. I think it would be harder in a murder. Trial. Yes. Especially I think it'll be the very ones difficult. that we're talking about, right. the Dylan Root and the Todd Colehep, are questioning the people. Can you see Todd Colehep questioning Caleb well, Brown, the woman who he kept? And those were high-profile cases. Everyone's heard about them. And I remember when that uh, we were talking earlier when we talked about this question. Colin Ferguson. Yes, Colin Ferguson. And him yep. having to question. I mean, I can't imagine being a witness. Right. It's one thing to have to face the person when you're a witness that's just sitting there passively, but he's asking you questions. Asking you questions that would be. Yeah. Well, it was in, in a macabre way. It was kind of comical when Ferguson asked one of the victims who shot you, and he looked right at him, pointed <laughs> at him, and said, "You did." <laughs> <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Matt.
Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, it's time for this week's recommendations and reviews. That was a good ask the lawyer, wasn't it? Yeah. And Matt always has. Yeah, oh, and Matt's always very Like I say, he brings this level of professionalism yeah. to the show. Thanks, that, Matt. Thanks, Matt. See ya. Sorry. Yeah, there he goes. He can't, you know, <laughs> he can't get out of here fast enough. Can he? After he talks to the Milliken girl. <laughs> Keeping with our Christmas theme, we're going to talk about our favorite Christmas movies. Okay. And I'm going to go first Uh-oh. because I'm already talking. Okay. And I own this microphone, Miss Milliken. That was my Ronald Reagan. Oh, okay. Remember from that? Yes, I remember. You don't remember? Yeah. I'm and my favorite Christmas movie may be one that will surprise people because they've never heard of it. And it's Desk Set, a 1950s movie starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. The premise is... <laughs> I'm just like looking at you. Like, yeah, you look at me like... Oh, I know the movie. I know movie. everybody wants to say A Christmas Story or It's a Wonderful Life. Fuck that. And, Oh, I was going to, never mind. Go yeah, on. they're, you know, it's they're, they've become cliches no matter what they may bring to the table. But this movie takes place in the research department of a major t- TV network, and Katherine Hepburn is head of the research department. Spencer Tracy is an efficiency expert who's come in, unbeknownst to them, to put in a giant computer that's going to take over their jobs. And as dated as that may seem, there are a lot of lines in there and things that are relevant, I think, yeah. to people... In, it's still, it's very in the funny, 21st though. century, whose jobs, and some of us can actually. I mean, even though it was before, I was. I mean, I I was born in the 60s, so before I was born, even when we were growing up in the 70s, 60s, late 60s, mid 70s, even early 80s, like my job was a computer operator. The computer was a whole room, as it is in this movie when yeah, it finally shows up. It. But my love anyway. of this movie has nothing to do with the computer. Okay. It has to do with first of all Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn, whose interaction is, I think, unparalleled of any couple in movie history, the way they interact. Even though he was an emotionally... I'm not talking about him as a human being. I'm talking (laughs) about him as an actor. Okay, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, we don't... I don't sit there and say, as a person, I have all these issues with Spencer Tracy. I like his acting. Okay. And his acting is good enough that when I'm watching a movie with him, I'm not thinking about him cheating on his wife with Katherine Hepburn for all those years or being a jerk or whatever. Also with, what's her name, Loretta Young. Whoever... In any case, eventually I'm actually going to get to talk about what I like about this movie and why it's a good Christmas movie. Well? It takes place as we get going towards Christmas, and Katherine Hepburn is dating Gig Young, who's her boss, and there are some very iffy sexual harassment type things going on. And she actually does a lot of his work for him as he goes flitting around. Gee, what's new? And she's hoping he'll ask her, A, to marry her, ha, 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 but also B, to the big dance or party i can't or whatever they have at the thing there's a fantastic scene where it's pouring rain Catherine hepburn and spencer tracy share a cab she was supposed to go to this big party that she was hoping to get asked to with gig young but he had to go out of town to chicago they go back to her her apartment and have dinner and it's just a great scene the way they interact with each other but his clothes are soaking wet so she gives him <laughs> she unwraps this bathrobe she was going to give gig wow. young for christmas and lets Spencer Tracy wear it while she's drying his clothes. And Gig Young's plane was grounded because of the storm, so he shows up with some Uh-oh. flowers and being all smarmy. One of my favorite scenes in movies of him, Spencer Tracy, and Katherine Hepburn sitting at the table making snide remarks, the two fellows are, while Katherine Hepburn kind of blithely giggles and goes through her thing and... It's just funny as hell. It ends, or towards the end, there's just one of those classic movie 
1950s office Christmas parties that they don't have anymore. Everybody's shit-faced and singing Christmas carols and all sorts of shenanigans and canoodling is going on. If you've never seen it, it's a great movie. I think it's one of the best Spencer Tracy Catherine Hepburn movies. There's some that got a lot more press and are more famous or legendary. And it's them at their best. And it also just has that Christmas feeling to it, the the office Christmas party and the excitement that comes as Christmas bears down on us, but also the anticipation of things people hope will happen that don't. And I just also want to put in a plug for my second favorite Christmas movie very quickly is A Christmas Carol, the one that, again, I wish I could remember the year, but it's a 1950s one with, it's in black and white with Alistair Sim Mm -hmm. as Scrooge that captures Dickens' spirit and is not all corny and overly cute like some of them. It doesn't have music like Scrooge. No, it doesn't. have. Well, it does have some music when there's music like when he goes... The greatest scene is when he goes to his nephew's party. Yes. His nephew, who's always asking him to the Christmas party, his but Scrooge... was nice to him. He was. His nephew it, loved him. He loved him no matter Even how cantankerous he was. A lesson to everybody, a Christmas lesson to everybody. The scene where he goes to that, shows up at that party and how happy they are to see him despite how jerky he'd been their entire life and how kindly they treat him. And it's just a great scene. Yes. And it's a really great version of A Christmas Carol, and I highly recommend it. I like that one, too. So what's your favorite Christmas movie, Becky? Well, I was going to say... You were going to say Christmas Carol till I shredded it. I was going to say It's a Wonderful Life, even though you just... You put everybody that likes that movie down. No, you know... I know it's a cliche, but I I do like it. I don't dislike that movie. I've always liked it. I'm just saying it's on all the time. I know it is on all the time. And everyone cites it as their... So I wasn't So that wasn't the one I picked, even though I do enjoy Uh, watching that. I do like it. And I also like not a movie, but a show, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the little... Puppet one. Although they've cut it and cut it and no, cut it. No, not if you have the DVD. Oh, yeah. I watched the D- I've seen the DVD about 12 million times because my daughter was obsessed with it from the time she was like two for a year. It didn't matter what time of year we had to watch it. Even now, I can watch it. I don't get tired of watching it. I don't know why. It is pretty funny, actually, especially Cornelius the with his all his different type of dogs and his dog sled. He's yeah, like I a like that. And all that stuff, and they get on the sled and he pulls and it. And Hermie. And Hermie. And so it is pretty funny. But all the male characters except for Hermie and Rudolph are assholes. I this will is say. our, our Even Santa bashing. But it's Santa true. is an asshole, yeah. And, and so is so and is isn't just Rudolph's us saying dad. Yeah. But I do like that one. But and R- Rudolph ends up having to become kind of an asshole to be accepted. I so guess it's, that's, that's the lesson the there. If you, you need to be an asshole to well, be accepted. Well, in 1965. Anyways, but one a Christmas movie that I like is also an older movie. I believe it is. It might be from the 40. Christmas in Connecticut with Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, I love that movie. Where she's a, she's a columnist for, I think, a ladies' magazine, like Better Homes and Gardens or something. That type of magazine, I and believe. And that one it's does a woman's have... woman's magazine. And that movie does have music. Oh, wait, not, I'm no. thinking of a different no. movie. It's not a musical, no. Barbara Stanwyck's not a singer. She has this fake persona that she has a husband who apparently, or a, a husband or fiance, I can't remember, who's a soldier. She's always cooking and all this shit. She's kind of like supposed to be like Martha Stewart type, and right. she supposedly has this house in Connecticut. Which really, she's a career a woman that lives in Manhattan and is single. With no man. I actually have the DVD at my house. 
because um, I bought it for like you know it was one of those one ninety nine deals we'll at the grocery it. store. It's one of those comedies that they used to have back then. That all sorts of things are going on at the same time, and people aren't aware of them. And so she has to pretend that this is her house because I think someone's doing a feature on her, a newspaper or somebody. Yes. Someone's coming to do a feature, and she has this old guy friend who's this German guy that's super funny. And um, you know how they always have, like, a lot of these older movies, there's an older mentorish type guy that's always making wisecracks and stuff. Mm. And so she gets the soldier somehow. Right, she as part of the feature that she's going to yeah. host the soldier yes. for Christmas. Yes, yes. Anyways, it's pretty funny. And hilarity ensues. It does. It's funny. And everything And they gets... don't really make, like, there aren't a lot of screwball comedy type of things that really no. pull it off well now. No. They're all stupid. A lot of poop and fart jokes and there's cruelty not... to animals. And, like, and... there's some newer ones I admit I've never seen. Like that Will Ferrell elf one? I have no interest. I know. I have no interest. I've never seen that, but there some two. people love that movie. Most different and people. like we were talking about A Christmas Story. I liked it when it first came out, but I'm sick of it now. Right. I remember, in fact, thing. literally when it first came out, I went with Brian Rule, uh. who at the time was a reporter at the Biddeford Journal-Tribune and was going to write a review of it for the paper. He and I went to an afternoon matinee in Biddeford. Cine 6. Cine 6. 6, or however you Cine say 6. Cine 8. Wasn't it Cine No, eight? it was oh, 6 at the time. Oh, yeah. It had just been built. This was the early 80s. Yes. We sat through it. I think we were the only ones in the theater, and we both came out and liked it, and we had both seen previously... Phantom of the Open Hearth yes, on, P- on, PBS, on PBS, which I have a very Gene grainy, Shepherd. right, a very grainy copy of that you can barely make out, and I would love to see that on Netflix or somewhere because A Christmas Story is good, but a lot of the elements in it were in Phantom of the Open Hearth which had James Broderick as the yes, father. Yes. Ralphie's a little older. It was edgier. Like was the whole thing edgier, with yeah. the the whole thing with the lamp. Yes. The major award. Yeah. Yeah, the great knee high lamp. Yeah. Was, was much funnier. It I was thought. much more biting. It was much more representative. And I'm not knocking a Christmas story because I thought it was great when it came out, but it's become such a thing over the past thirty years yeah. that I'm a little tired of everybody thinking that they're discovering this great movie. Yeah, yeah. If anyone can find Phantom of the Open Hearth which is edgier, much more representative of Gene Shepard's humor, yes. the essayist and, yes. and who had written it in the first place. It's darker and it's funnier. It's definitely worth finding if it's out there. The last time I looked for it was seven or eight years ago, and I found a DVD that's like a pirated DVD that you can barely make mm, out the images on. be somewhere. I would love for it to be somewhere. It was a PBS yeah, special. Yeah, it was on PBS. Because they used to have that Gene Shepard's yes, America yes. that was where he... he did would, one on the Skowhegan Fair once. I he did. And he reason. was... In fact, let's recommend Gene Shepard. Anything by him, any book by him, or anything you can find by him, because he's funny and dark. He gave us a Christmas story, but he gave us some stuff that's... Yes. That if you like a Christmas story, you like his other stuff And I recommend better. Barbara Stanwyck, because I like her and everything. Right. And I recommend Tracy and Hepburn. <laughs> no matter what you may of think of their illicit lifelong affair. A friend of mine once, I used to always watch The Big Valley after school. And, and Barbara Stanwyck. Yes. Did, you have a, did you have a girl crush on her? I don't know. Someone's her, like, she had that throaty it was, whiskey it was When I was in college, it wasn't in high school. It used to be on like one of those stations used to have all those Western Like Channel shows 38. On. No, yeah. it was like Nickelodeon or something oh. like that. They used oh, to have okay. all these wagon train and Big Valley and Rifle Bonanza. Yeah. And she's like, she came over once, probably just 
smoke pot or something. And she's like, how can you watch this? How can you watch that horrible woman? I'm like, it's Barbara Stanwyck. It's Barbara Stanwyck. She was a hot shit. And also, <laughs> just Spencer Tracy, yes. when you watch his acting He's a good actor, in Desk yes. Set, Very subtle watch too. what he does and how he does it, just his reactions. Nobody does it like that. and it's I'm agreeing with you. Okay. And I like him. But I, I'm at, no, since we do have the big family Christmas party <coughs> and we have lots of Sorry. cookies to bake and presents to wrap, anxieties to quell, and everything else, stockings to stuff, I think it's probably time that we sign okay. off. Yeah. I hope everybody has a happy Christmas and happy and Hanukkah, a happy listen, Festivus. If you listen to us on iTunes... Which is crime and stuff. With an ampersand. With an ampersand. You can subscribe. And you can see our little, our little logo with our... That two, you created. Our two um, little cartoon right? women. Please review us. Subscribe. Yeah, subscribe and... and review us. Review. Review us and rate us. Rate us. Our Facebook page is crime and, and stuff. And Andy. Yes. Okay. I'm trying I to think. keep straight what's... It may have an ampersand, but you know, you can find it. You, you know, can you can find it. it. And I our, think it's an ampersand because the... the, the we the, should know uh, this. Don't you think tired. we should know this stuff? I have a cold again. This is the podcast you do yourself if you, if had, you, nothing ha- if you had nothing better to do. to do. Crime and Stuff Online. Crime and Stuff Online. Our, that's our website. Crime and, and Stuff Online. On there Twitter. you can... Well, on our website, Crime and Stuff Online, there's a page where you can subscribe. If Not only on iTunes, but any way you like any to subscribe way you like to, listen. to your podcast. You could donate to help us get better equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can, we can get better hosts. You know what? If if you give us enough money, you can be a guest. And we're going to be back next week. We're going to be talking about JonBenet Ramsey and yes. the various documentaries that were made about her. Yes. And I won't say celebration of the 20th anniversary Aww. of her faked abduction and death. Aww. And what else? Is there anything else we need to tell our listeners? We want to thank people for listening. I do thank everyone for listening. And we I, I thank Matt Nichols. Our, our, our lawyer. lawyer for coming every week and yes, listening and to us and taking us, acting like he takes us seriously. I don't, I don't think you really. And we also need to thank soundj.com for the free <laughs> downloads for our theme song. Yes. And yes. we'll be back next week. Bye. Thanks for listening. Thank you. This story was written six years ago, and it seems like. Can can you go tell him to be quiet? Yeah. Hey, Dad! We're trying to record! <laughs>